Welcome to episode 40 of Super Entertainment Presents, the television crossover universe on the Grand Gugnall Network. Coming to you live from Castle Wolfenstein, hosted by the TVCU crew. The TVCU crew are a team of crossovers who devote way too much of their time to connecting the dots through official crossovers and Easter eggs in order to demonstrate a shared fictional reality we call the television crossover universe. No, your ears do not deceive you. This is not Robert E. Ronsky Jr., the networker, and this is not Castle Wolfenstein, but a lone host behind the chrome microphone of excellence. Before we begin, I'd like to read a statement from our former host, Robert E. Ronsky Jr. In 1979, a teacher asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up, and I said I wanted to be a writer. That same year, I created Super Comics as the umbrella for everything I wrote. It was, of course, a pretend publishing company. In 2007, I declared to a friend that I could use the Internet and social media to become famous. In 2011, I created the Television Crossover Universe website. It was really a place for me to put my notes on my love of crossovers, but a few people I had met online, like James Boyachuk, Ivan Ronald Shabalowski, and Gordon Long, loved to read it. I never expected nearly half a million views would ever be achieved. I also never expected to publish a book, let alone two, but that happened, and my pretend publishing company became super entertainment. And then a podcast happened, and as with the website, I pulled together the best talent to surround myself with and sought out great guests, folks I wanted to talk to, and create a unique show about crossovers with interviews that felt like discussions. Discussions like those held in this very online forum. Discussions I love so much. My closest friends are people who are in this group. But life is hard. I have physical limitations stemming from mixogenetics and a very physically demanding military career, and they are getting worse. Additionally, financial struggles have caused me to have to take on work that has taken me away from my true love, crossovers. I won't get to finish what I started, but I feel I've created something that's bigger than me and that will continue on without me and grow and become larger than I could have imagined. The website and the podcast are in great hands. I'm proud of what I started. I'm amazed it got as far as it did. I'm sad that my involvement is at an end. Feeling a bit lost now as though I've lost my identity and purpose. But I'm always around, and everything happens somewhere. I'd like to amend a personal note to that. If Rob was not my first professional contact, he was certainly one of my first. We met in an old shared universe Yahoo group, one that I found while bored between classes. And we quickly bond as the only two really willing to put new research and new articles out about this and continue to explore the strange things that happen when you shove universes that don't belong together up into each other. We started a book club, which was one of the things I'm most proud of from that period of my career when I was a whelp in high school. And it was a lively, excited book club that had well over 100 lengthy emails sent back and forth on the first book we covered alone. When the book club ended, that's eventually how I ended up working with Rob on the TVCU. I won't recount any more of the story. The story is told often enough, and you only need to listen to past episodes to hear it from the man himself. But I'd like to say it's always been an honor to work with Rob. All the best to you, wherever you go. And wherever you go, there you are. Now, listeners, rest assured this show will go on. This is not the end. We believe the best way to honor Rob's work is to keep the show on the road and keep going forward into bold new eras of crossoverology. One last note. A running joke on the podcast whenever Rob's away is that he is a future incarnation of the Doctor who lost his memory due to a fob watch. And whenever he's absent, the fob watch is broken, he remembers who he is, and he has great adventures. Previously, 
He saved the universe from the cyberborg and frontlined a concert with Josie and the Pussycats. Well, let's establish him one last great adventure where this future doctor and his companions, Josie and the Pussycats, team with all the doctors and alternate universe doctors to present the great old ones from rising. Now, all of that said, let's move on to the episode proper. Joining me tonight are two guests, Nicole Petit, author, curator, and series editor at 18th Wall Productions, and M.H. Norris, our guest, author at 18th Wall Productions as well. You know what this means? This is the 18th Wall Power Hour. Now we just need a rocking guitar solo. Yes, we do. Where can if we get had, one of those? If you'd let me know more than an hour in advance, I would have tried to find something for you, James. But <laughs> Well, I hired you to be a miracle worker. Okay, but would this be the 18th wall power hour if there wasn't like this last-minute decision that we should do something and then we all scramble to try and figure out how to get it to work? Yes. I mean, we actually lost one-fourth of the power hour because he has food poisoning. Ben, at the last minute, decided to get a meal from 7-Eleven. And he's been sick all day. Oh, that is no fun. Tale as death. He doesn't even recognize himself in the mirror. (laughs) But he's here with us in spirit, listeners. He's with us in spirit, and hopefully his spirit hasn't lost his body yet. (laughs) That's awful. Now, let's come to the part where we talk about our shameless plugs. Feel free to pitch our listeners something you've written or edited, or as Nick Briggs would say, something out there that's vibrating your molecules. What's cool? Let's start with you, Nicole. Oh, starting with me. Um, well, let's see. Considering that I'll be shamelessly plugging other things in my own um time when I'm not the guest host here, I guess. I'll save all of the plugging for my own stuff for then. Um, But as far as what I've been listening to, I've been listening to Big Finish's recent um, Mel and Ace Adventures, which is just so exciting for me to see my favorite Team TARDIS come back um, after the singular episode they were in in Dragonfire way back in the classic series. It's really, really interesting to see them pick right back up where they started. Yes. It's been I, really, really good. It's I've yet, I've yet to actually listen to that. That is really high up on my list. Oh, you need to. I mean, you find out such wonderful things, like chocolate spread is one of Ace's main food groups. I don't think we much has learned that or had it confirmed, because I think we all knew that all along, to be to be fair. To be, to be fair. fair. MH, what would you like to sell us on? Oh, I mean, I'm selling you on everything for the next hour. But in this particular moment, uh, since I don't know if we'll have a segue for it later, let's talk about the time travel nexus, um, especially because Fall TV is starting up in a month. And that means my side of the website is going to kick it into a new gear. And with all these networks, something about this year is time travel TV. There's I believe four new shows coming on through all these different networks. And of course, Supergirl is getting added to the Arrowverse on CW. So there's going to be a lot of fun stuff to see. And I'm going to be documenting it all over at timetravelnexus.com. And we know that you're most excited for the time travel bong. Oh, yes. You know, it's going to be my guilty pleasure. Um, No, I'm actually probably most excited 
uh, probably to see what CW does with Supergirl because I enjoy the Arrowverse and I'm interested to see how she fits in after it's been established that she's in a different universe and how they're going to work around that here in season two of Supergirl. I'm only excited because of all the comments the actor has made about Superman and how he wants to do a real hopeful Superman that children can look up to. Oh, that'd be really nice. So, moving on to my plug, I would like to plug a novel I am taking far too long to read, which is Salamandistron, a Redwall novel that Nicole got me to start reading in May, and I have been taking far too long with it. But really, if you like fantasy novels, if you like Win in the Willows, if you like Win in the Willows in your fantasy novels, like a Reese's Cup, you need to read this novel. I'm just glad you're finally getting around to my recommendations. <laughs> I have been reading this for months and nothing else because I'm just so slow right now with work. Any... Anyway, let's cut to a commercial break and then we'll come back with Mary Helen's interview. Last on our show, her novella that we discussed in depth last time, Badge City, Notches, won the Pulp Arc New Pulp Award for Best Novella. She's also released a new, and we think better novella, The Whole Art of Detection, as part of 18th Wall Productions' The Science of Deduction series. All of this while writing more short stories than several 18th Wall employees can shake sticks at, and writing for the time travel nexus. So... MH, since last time we spoke to you, your novella, Badge City Notches, had won the Pulp Arc New Pulp Award in its category. How does that feel? Well, we're actually going to have to back that up and tell a fun story. When I came on originally, that within a half hour of us ending the show, they actually announced the nominations and I got nominated. And everyone's like, well, why didn't you say something? We would have said something. And I was like, I just found out. Um, so I was really surprised to be nominated and then much less win the award. Um, I wanted to write and didn't imagine that I'd be able to take it seriously until I was older. So to be here at 24 and not only be nominated, but win my first award feels pretty incredible. It's a sweet note on a very long process that was Batch City Notches. And Doc Claws. Don't forget Doc Claws. Really? We will never forget Don't Doc Claws. Ever forget Actually, Doc Claus. we will never forget. I had to start somewhere. I'm going to throw the same line out again. Everyone starts somewhere, and there's some sweet memories attached to it, but oh, oh, Doc Claws. I think you really need to get poor Alex a gift for editing for that, you, editing that for you yes, three I, times. I three do need to get her something. Really? You just. Nikki, next time we get him on as a guest, we're going to have some fun, okay? Oh, yes, we definitely will. But, yes, I do need to buy Alex something shiny, and I will. But, someone please ask a question. (laughs) Well, you never actually answered the question. I did answer. It feels good. It feels actually pretty great. Um. And it's, like I said, it's a sweet note on a rather long process that my first full-length work got an award. It's a great feeling. Yes. 
last time I started your interview with the most pressing question, one my life might depend on. Why serial killers? But your most recent novella, The Whole Art of Detection, only has one dead body. So why only kill one person and be done with the whole bloody affair now? Well, when you asked me the question originally, I said, why not? Um, but we also briefly mentioned, I don't, and I still actually do not understand how people can write, um, Whole Art of Detection is a novella. And I don't understand how people can write these several hundred page novels on just one murder because I struggled a bit to just do it for that length of a work, um, part of it was to prove it to myself. I could write a whole story on just one murder. Uh, part of it was I didn't and that necessarily want to try to fit multiple ones in. It didn't work in this instance. And with this idea to have multiple murders, it works for just the one. So it is an instance by instance thing. Uh, but for this one murder work for notches, it needed to be multiple to carry a bigger punch. Yes. So tell us about the whole art of detection, your detective, and what's different about her, and also your victim. She's an interesting sort of victim. Well, before I actually, I actually have to thank Nicole, because she helped make the story what it is, because she told me no. She told me I shouldn't, correct. (laughs) She told me I shouldn't do something, which made me rethink my idea, and I think actually did produce a stronger story. That is her greatest talent, telling you no. I'm really good at that. That's, that's but, my favorite talent. But it, this is an odd sort of story, and I know we're going to actually get into why it's odd later on. But Adelaide, we start out when we see her a few years younger than I am. She's just out of high school, getting ready to start college. You know, her whole life's ahead of her, and she's got big dreams. And she finds the infamous whole of detection, Sherlock Holmes' for lack of a better term, memoir, but his how-to guide and how he did what he did. And she finds it, which, you know, in theory, according to even to him, makes him her protege. She's about to take up the mantle he did and solve cases. And when we fast forward to the heart of the story, it's 10 years later, she's already established herself as the next Sherlock Holmes, as one of the greatest detectives on the planet at the time, and gets thrown this interesting case. And this is part of where Nikki told me now. Um, and I'm actually really glad she told me no, because what I did was actually more fun, in my opinion, because it's very subtle and I don't directly point it out. But the story actually takes place about a decade in the future from now. And so I kind of play off the idea that no, Harry Potter fever will never die, but it's calmed down a bit in 10 years. And I mean, given the cursed child, your prediction might be wrong. This is true. <laughs> uh which, you know, I should have thought of as I was writing that, but, you know, oh, well. So this is uh, Nadine Jallet is murdered, and she wrote this fantasy series, and it's only six books because that's partially because I have this thing about even numbers and the fact that there's seven Harry Potter books, and, think, and I'm kind of glad she wrote an eighth for my thing about even numbers. But uh, So there's the six books, and everyone calls it a knockoff of the Harry Potter series, but it's just different enough that she gets away with it, and it gets on people's nerves but then there's that fandom that follows it and loves it and it's like oh my gosh this is the greatest thing and no it's nothing like harry potter and she's murdered in a replica of the castle from her story that's a knockoff of hogwarts and the whole thing just spins and snowballs from there as i ignore the fact that you know that's where the whole premise came in originally harry potter would have been a thing in this universe and she was 
it was the only series. I like that there's the conflicting series that occasionally gets referenced. That's probably one of the biggest crossovers. It's like poke at Harry Potter every That's now not and a then. Crossover. It's not. But it's a fun reference and an Easter egg. There you go. That's an Easter egg. It's a better term. Thank you, James. You're welcome. Uh, she, she is interesting. Uh, she's very... Nadine was a very uppity person. That It has to be this way and done this way and done this way at this time. And, and who was that based on? Um, P.L. Travers, actually. Nikki gave me the idea. Uh, that that uh, Off the measuring tape story, and I... And when we were watching Mary Poppins, I think shortly after she gave me the idea, uh, we saw the bonus feature where the measuring tape story is mentioned, that it had to be done a specific way, because this is the way it had to be done. And Nadine was like that. And it drove stuff late. There's actually a note where she drove production behind by several months on one of the previous movies, and it caused an actor to lose out on a big money contract. And... At the same time, either the fandom knows this, but they don't acknowledge it, that she's this uppity and occasionally rude person, and they love her. And, in fact, um, the case gets handed to them, by, to, handed to Adelaide, by someone that's in the line of succession for the Crown, um, saying, I want this solved because I love her work, and it means a lot to people that I care about, and it needs to be solved. Time to suck it up to getting good with a future queen. It really does, even though, you know, she's so far down the line she'll never get there. But that's not the point. It's worth mentioning your detective despises this series. So despises much. Despises both series. Actually, let's clarify that. She despises it, but her sidekick and best friend adores it. In fact, I think she was supposed to be going to a book signing. I never actually say this in the story, but in my head, she was actually about to go to a book signing to get a book signed before... <laughs> The author gets murdered, but she adores the series, and this is a constant point of fighting. And uh, in fact, uh, Nessie, uh, her best friend and partner in this business, actually picks on her because she's leafing through one of the books trying to look for clues. You know, she's like, I, I thought you were never going to read this. She's like, I'm not. I'm skimming for the case. But, you know, she, she hates this book series, and she hates the overzealous fans, and she hates about everything about it. Uh, uppity movie stars and nitpicky authors and she's like why am I here and hopes you know this doesn't get copied down in her memoir like a lot of Sherlock Holmes's case but we all know it well sorry Adelaide yes so would you like to talk about the murder weapon oh murder weapon was a hard one um and it took me the longest time uh to throw. And then finally, actually, James, I believe you're the one that sent me these worms that yes. secrete this. Um, the worms mentioned in the problem of Thor Bridge. Where it drove, um, a person was found dead and there's this worm unknown to science. And of course, at first, my brain goes elaborate. What's unknown to science? But then I realized this is the 1800s when this is unknown to science. That doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot because a lot was still unknown to science in the 1800s. I mean, they made leaps and bounds, especially going into the Victorian era, but we still had leaps and bounds to go to get where we are today. And so it's more that it was an undiscovered worm, and we found this worm that when I eventually Googled it more in depth is actually native to South America. Velvet so worms. The velvet worms, and they're these 
if you Google a velvet worm, oh, they're disgusting looking, especially some of the varieties. I, they're amazing. They're disgusting. They're and amazing. I, fact, I would barely look at them. I would go look at a fact, scroll up so I couldn't see the pictures of the worms, get my fact, and I'd go. I was like, nope. I don't need nightmares tonight while writing this, but... So what is unusual about these worms? They actually secrete this acid, and it could melt down... It could actually, in theory, melt down a human brain if you have enough of it, and it's long enough exposure, because they kind of dissolve their food. They eat... They're meat-eating worms. It's weird. They're meat-eating worms, they dissolve their food, then they eat it. And, ugh. And this compound is highly psychoactive. Yeah, so it actually could, in theory drive a person insane, which was actually an angle we visited at one point, and I actually visited the idea of not actually doing a murder mystery, but instead just doing a straight-up mystery, and then I just ended up killing her off because it makes everything so much easier. <laughs> <laughs> and what else is weird about them? Um, now I'm trying to get what you're implying, because the, the acid... They have legs like a centipede. Oh yeah, that's right. So that's they have another these reason. Stubby little cow legs, really. But I, it's yeah, they're these stubby little things, and I think they actually still squirm like a worm, but they have legs, and it's they do look like a centipede. Yes. And I think at one point Adelaide does make that mention that she thought it was in the centipede family when it's in fact in the worm family. Um, but yeah, yeah, they're they're special little things. Go ahead, Google them. You'll see pictures. I tried to warn you, but. Ugh. Yeah, that, that is a murder weapon. single character in it is terrified of these worms. A They're bit just... of author perspective. Yes, everyone just hates them. stand in there. There really is, because Adelaide can't stand them, and I'm like, nope, mm-mm. Sorry, honey child, I need to voice my opinion on these things through you. So, because this is a crossover show, tell us about the crossovers you put in your story. Um, the Easter egg is Harry Potter, but my personal favorite crossover, and it's one we figured out very early on, was the fact that I actually crossed over with myself in another series that actually has not come out yet. It's funny that probably one of Roselle's last appearances chronologically is going to be her first appearance in liter- um, in a book. She actually shows up, and as I said, this story takes place 10 years in the future, whereas when the first All the Petty Miss mystery comes out, that's very much present day. So we're going to see a, we see a future Rosella that comes in and out of the story, um, offering her opinion, because in her opinion, Sherlock Holmes is a myth and not a real person. And so she sees this as partially in her area of expertise, but not... And she also does have some personal connections to the case. And it takes her for a ride as well as Adelaide. And it was fun to bring her in and kind of let people get a glimpse of Rosella and this preview of what's to come for her. And But but he's very vague about her future, which I intentionally did because there's stuff I'm still deciding. So you see her, she comes, she makes appearances. And that's my personal favorite is I love getting to play with her in a setting that's very fish out of water for her. She's such an unhappy camper. Really? I don't think she'll ever go across the pond again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not an easy story for poor Rosella. Sorry. She has to deal with so many nuts. People who believe in this bonkers book series, people who believe in homes, better just go stay home. Yeah. 
what other crossovers? This is one of my favorite parts. You put so many things in as you write, and then you don't remember them. <laughs> I really <laughs> don't. Sorry for all of us. I saw this question an hour ago, and I was like, oh, dang it. What's in here? And you're going to take great pleasure in reminding me what's in my own book, aren't you? Would I do such a thing? We all can tell from your tone you would. Like no, a second favorite pastime. Okay, to start with, there's another series of yours that's not coming out yet that you reference. Okay, I'll just help you. Yes, please help me, because I only can think of one series I have coming out soon. I'm glad you remember my writing docket better than I currently do. Your your thriller podcast that you're working on is referenced in Sherlock Holmes' letter. That's right! I forgot we slid that reference in. Adelaide previously did some training with Cal Lightman from Lie to Me, though she doesn't agree with any of his methods. Uh, you would think I'd remember that one because I was so proud because I feel like Lie to Me is a very underappreciated series, and it's one of my favorites. So to be able to sneak that in there, and you think I would remember that I pulled that one off. You'd think so. In The Publisher, there is also references to... Oh, what is it? There's a reference to Simon R. Green's work and also to Kim Newman with fantasy childrens that they both have in their fiction written for children, supposedly. Right. Um, I'm really just scanning through because they're so thick. There's a reference to Philip Jose Farmer's Doc Savage novel and which is also Raffles story, which both also dealt with similar velvet worm issues. There is also a reference to a Jess Niven story that dealt with velvet worms. I'd also and, like to think that some of these, I don't even realize I'm putting them in. I just, they, I think some of them just sneak in, and that's why I don't remember them, because I don't realize they're there. <laughs> now, lie to me, I consciously I, put in there, but the I other ones I can I think you have real talent for putting things in consciously, and then zip out of the brain. <laughs> well, I'm trying to keep a story going. Sometimes details just slip. <laughs> no, I actually have to. Here's a look into my writing process, dear listeners. I actually have to have a document there sitting with names. This is who this person is, and have it sitting there the entire time I'm writing a story. Otherwise, I'm not going to remember everyone's name. So if I want to reference someone I mentioned four or five scenes ago, no, it's got to be in the document. So every time I name someone, it goes in the document. <laughs> if it works, it works. It does for now. Uh, those are the main ones. I have the feeling that there are some littler ones to things I'm not familiar with, knowing you. So, listeners, there's your sales pitch. Read it and see what you can find. That, that, I like that sales pitch. Let me know. what I'm curious what you find. We discuss these. If you find more, we'll get to where you can find me in a bit. And you can let me know. Hey, I found this. And I'll be like, yeah, I intentionally put that in there. I might not have. yes we'll compare notes so do you have anything else you would like to say about the whole art of detection um oh i actually yes because then i get to shamelessly pitch we're gonna when james actually approached me about doing one of these i was a little apprehensive because if you know james boychuk at all you know he is a huge sherlock holmes fan 
And for him to be like, hey, do you want to write a story? And I'm sitting there like, <laughs> do I want to write one that you're going to read and tell me everything I did wrong? And I was very apprehensive, which is why mine is present day slash future. And I did not attempt to do a Victorian, which don't get me wrong. I love doing historicals. They're fun. I did Livin' Herberts, which all, which got nominated for awards. It didn't win any. And I also am do, doing one that's coming out later this year called Saucy Robot. It's in the 1930s. So I've got the 1930s, the 1960s. They're fun. I heard that, Nicole. Um, <laughs> I, I did nothing. I remember since. And it's fun to do historicals, but I didn't necessarily want to go to the Victorian and do Sherlock Holmes himself because... I, not with James looking over my shoulder while I wrote this. So it was fun to find a way to fit the rules of his collection and put my own spin on it and feel good about the story. So check it out, because I like how it turned out. Yes. Plus, I also proved to myself that I can write an entire story on one murder, which is good to know. Yes. Now let's shift to the very beginning of Rosella's career. You have an anthology coming up soon, All the Petty Myths. What is that about? Well, not only does this anthology hold Rosella's first story, which I'm going to talk about more in a second, but I actually have to plug my other authors because I have a couple other fun stories coming in, and they've been great and really patient because this process is drawing itself out a little longer than I anticipate it, but it's part of the, I want to make sure we get the best collection out there and that their stories shine like they deserve. So I've got uh, a, a variation on The Vanishing Hitchhiker. I've got a fun ghost story that I didn't see the end coming, and I was and I actually couldn't put it down. I was in there like, no. So then I had to go through a second time to actually edit because the first time I actually was just reading to enjoy it, uh, which is good if you're a catcher editor and they sit there and enjoy the story and then have to go back and be like, all right, let's edit. So those who are in, uh, eventually I'm going to have a couple other ones coming in that I'm excited to see and then of course we have midnight rosella's first adventure and it's an odd that it's in a sense her first adventure but we also get the indication that it's not but it was a great point to start the series and i needed that and even james you were like why are we starting here so i had to find a reason and this is more where rosella's shifting from this is a hobby of mine to this is what i'm going to do with my life and so she is in the process of starting that. The, she's she's going to move from her home in the Midwest to the to the D.C. area because that's where a lot of cases will come up, like the FBI and uh, various contracts she could get are in D.C. So she was going to move there. And in the process of trying to move, she gets asked to do work this case because her reputation precedes her. And, and so instead of being like, oh, let me find office space and a house and actually move so I can actually start working, she actually starts working and gets dragged on a case. So her little weekend trip becomes a almost month-long trip. Yes. Is this your highest body count? It actually is. I'm not going to give away how many I'm dropping, but this is the highest body count. And it's done in a much different way than notches. It's partially you have because to it, make up for the whole art of detection. I did. I, I There was just not enough bodies. And even though I proved to myself that I could just do one, you know, I just didn't have to turn around and drop as many as I could squeeze in. And I almost did more. But then I actually said no. And I, I said enough at one point. But there was a, there was a moment where there was going to be more than there actually will be. Yes, and, I'm impressed at your forbearance. That's right. Control. <laughs> 
it's it's a story that lends itself to uh, sadly to that many murders and yeah it is my highest body count but also the so same time would you like to tell us the general pitch and idea behind this mystery series what sets her apart well what sets Rizella apart is the idea she is what is known as a forensic mythologist and I briefly touched on this last time I was on the show where she basically is she's a certified forensic anthropologist and, but she tends to take those cases that are centered around myths, like Bloody Mary, and in the case of this story here, the Midnight Game, uh, other ones I ventured on are ghost stories, anything that seems to be more something you would see on see not a traditional case, she takes it because she knows nine times out of ten, she won't confirm or deny that some of this stuff is real. That's one thing you'll never catch Rosella doing. She won't tell people her opinions on that because... I think it lends a little bit to the mystery of who she is and lets people think, oh, she knows what she's talking about. And then she's also just being cheeky. Um, but she takes these cases and kind of scooby-doos it. She takes that mask off and says, you know, this isn't the infamous Midnight Man who's darker than Midnight skulking in the halls. She's like, no, this is a person doing this. And my job is to sit here and find him or her. And what is the Midnight Man? The Midnight Game, actually, we're going to have to start with that to get to the Midnight Man. The Midnight Game is, to me, one of the biggest wastes of time I've ever seen the internet decide to do. <laughs> I have yet to understand the point of this game. And this is another little author insert, because Rosella doesn't understand it either. Because trying to be as objective as possible, I'm like, there's no point. What happens is there's a summoning ritual you do right at the stroke of midnight, um, where you have to prick your f finger and put it on a piece of paper that you've written your name on while sitting in front of a wooden door, and you knock, I think it's 27 times, you have to time that last knock to hit exactly at midnight, and you're in your pitch black house with only a candle, and you have to have matches, but not a lighter. This is very specific here. And you get to wander around for three hours and 33 minutes. This is very specific time. In your pitch black house, trying to avoid what is known as the Midnight Man. Now, the lore behind this game is that it was a pagan ritual designed to discourage troublemakers or punish troublemakers because letting them have to wander out in the wilderness in what is known as the witching hour is a good punishment. Uh, now, wandering in your home, you know, with your snug air conditioning, that's just plain, really? Netflix, Netflix is a much better use of your time. Or read my book. There you go. Um, but you wander around and this midnight man, the myth gets a little different depending on where you go to get your account, but most commonly it's, he's referred to as being darker than midnight himself. And you either notice him because of cold spots, a traditional ghost thing that it's a cold spot. You hear this garbled whisper. Uh, other people have claimed to actually hear him speak to them, uh, People say your candle goes out, she's nearby, and you have 10 seconds to relight that candle. If you can't get it relit in 10 seconds, you're supposed to have salt with you, and you draw yourself into a salt circle, sit down, and you're stuck there until 3.33 a.m. Um, That's how I want to spend my night. That really is how I want to spend my night, stuck in a salt circle. There was, a when I was doing initial research for the story, an interesting account where someone played the game, and they got stuck in the circle, 
I think they played it twice, actually, um, once alone. And you actually can play with other people. The caveat is you have to have multiple wooden doors, one for each player, because they have to knock on their own door. But then you can all play together. I think you also have to be in your own salt circle. But I've also seen accounts where you don't. It also depends on how you want to interpret the lore. But it's just bizarre. And they said, like, you know, that the Midnight Man actually said something to him and it was coherent. And I've, But I've also seen where it's just garbled whispers. Uh, and I won't tell you which take on this I take, but I do take a take on it. With I mean, my, my favorite version that I saw online from someone claiming to have played it is that they claimed the Midnight Man got really angry, so he just started ripping their porch and ceiling apart. Like, he's just this angry, drunk guy, and he's fed up with ceiling, so he's going to get rid of it. Yeah, some people do have lore that he... Um, does moves interfere with stuff around you. It's part of that freak you out thing. I've seen accounts where people say, no, he doesn't do that. And another place where the Lord does get shady is what happens if he catches you. If you don't get that circle up or he just scout catches you, that's where it gets shady. And that's something that Rosella has to explore. So I'm actually not going to elaborate on that because Rosella has to take a look at the lore and how it changes from time to time and how that affects her case. But oh, okay. so why use this creepy pasta in general? What got you onto creepy pasta to use for her first case? Because Rosella talks about this a lot and how frustrated she is in this story with online folklore. Part of it is because I just I could have gone. I didn't want to go for something like Bloody Mary because that is done all the time and. I, I've considered down the road maybe Rosella will have a case involving Bloody Mary, but at this time, I, that for the first one, for that I needed something kind of odd and fun, and then I ended up on internet folklore, I was typing in uh, urban myths, urban legends, digging around for something, um, as I tell James, as I do research for her next story, I need something that speaks to me, and... Um, I, I have occasionally sent him something, and I'm like, this speaks to me. And the Midnight Game was just so ridiculously stupid to me that I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's like, the way you pick. It's like, what's the stupidest sounding thing? But that's perfect because it lets, you know, me play with her because the myth's not that complicated. It's just, really? Well, working <laughs> from that, I know what you should do for your Bloody Mary story. Oh, no. There's actually a sequel ritual to Bloody Mary that almost no one knows about because of how stupid it is. And it's Baby Blue, where you can summon up Bloody Mary's child. And the child will get heavier and heavier in your arms, and if you don't put it back into the mirror, it will crush you to death. See, I was going to suggest who was phone. but Oh, please. I think that's what you should do. In fact, just make every single Rosella story who was phone. There's so much untapped greatness in that tale. There, there was actually a lot of gems hiding. Um, it's more the, what do I want to do at this time? What do I want to save for later? What can I see? And it spark a story where part of the reason with the Midnight Game is I saw it and a story kind of formed itself. I can see, high, um, and I'll admit, it's high schoolers, because apparently it has something about juvenile murder. Um, well, just question what that says about my mental state at a later date. Um, but... I could just see high schoolers playing it because what are we going to do with a 
media-obsessed and stupid generation that is millennials, and I'm counting myself in that. But they're going to play a game they found on Creepypasta because, oh, this sounds like fun. And then what are they going to do when their classmates turn out murdered over the weekend? We're going to play again. Okay, let me help you out, Mary Helen. I'm going to read you the best creepypasta, and you can base everything on it in the future. Oh, no. So you're with your honey, and you're making out when the phone rings. You answer it in the voices, what are you doing with my daughter? You tell the girl, and she says, my dad is dead. Who was phone? Oh, goodness. Yeah, there are, there are a lot. Of stuff like that hiding, such on creepypasta. That's just a magical minefield of specialness at times. But that, that's why. That's why Midnight. Because it's just so special that I was like, yes, this is what I need to do. Um, just kind of give her something that completely frustrates her. She's already kind of, you know, as callous as it sounds, she's frustrated that she's getting dragged on this case when she's in the middle of something. She's trying to move. She's trying to figure out what she's going to do next. And they're like, come help on this case. But at the same time, she's also, once again, as callous as the sound, she's like, ooh, if I help with this case, this will mean good things for my new agency because people see how I did on this, and then they'll hire me. So she does have these moments where she acknowledges that that's what she's thinking at times, that I need to do well on this case because I need the money later down the road. And as callous as it is, it's, that's life. Um and at times, she does let her mind wander. And, I'm, and I, given the times, I'm like, really? This is what we're going to talk about right in the middle of the murder scene? Um, My but favorite yeah. is her trying to remember if she TiVo'd the right shows while in a bloody room. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's just result. I mean, I think at one point, she's um, just leaving a murder scene. And her realtor calls, and she sits there and has a whole conversation with the realtor over houses. Because that's why she'd gone to D.C. when the story starts. So she's listening and has her conversation because she's trying to move. <laughs> Priorities are in check. On the back of your book, can we, going back a bit, because I'm just, I'm enjoying this right now. Can we have a magical minefield of specialness as the review on the back of your book? Please. I think sure. that's what we need to do. I mean, it, it, at times it really is magical minefield of specialness. <laughs> Oh, the story. It's it's one of those I'm trying to push myself because people seem to enjoy badgeting it won an award. And I did a home story, and so now I'm like, well, what's next? What can I do? And I'm also setting Rosella up for a series. So why should you come back for the first full book on just her? And that's where I sometimes am struggling. I'm trying to make, sh- you know, make it so up. I am happy with the story, but that readers are happy and that they'll want to come back and hear more about her story. I think that the first book really needs to get in-depth onto her TiVo habits. Uh, I mean, we, we might have to discuss TiVoing because of... Well, I'm not going to actually go into that as we're... Uh, why we might have to mention TiVo a couple times in the first book, but I'm sure it will come up because TiVoing is very important, especially with the CW cutting its Hulu deal and nothing going on Hulu. There we go. There's the a title little... for the series, The TiVo Detective. <laughs> really, James? Really? 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 Um, Any final thoughts on this one? 
Um, I'm really excited for it. And this has been an idea that I've been kicking around probably since before I started writing Badge City Notches. And then it got shoved to the side because I got the opportunity to write Badge City. And it got shoved to the side because something else came up. And it's one of those I kept shoving to the side. And finally, James was like, let's write this. And so then I got to write it. So it's fun to see it start to come to life and to see where it's going to go. And it's fun once I got to know, and I'm still getting to know Rosella and her quirks and how she handles things. And it's fun seeing how we're similar, but we're also different. And it's fun writing stuff from her point of view. And I disagree with her. And that's happened a couple times. Um, and I'm not sure which one of us could outsass the other, but that, that'd be a debate for a later time. But, <laughs> but we also share our tea obsession, so that's fun. Adelaide. Um, Adelaide would outsass you both. Oh, I really think she would. Um, you tapped into a special place of sass with her. I tapped into special, yeah. I, I, well, Adelaide needed something to, you know, set herself apart, and I don't know if I was trying to... What I was trying to... Which that's you, how Adelaide... I love how you don't know what you did when you actually did a good job portraying someone who's, after a decade of working with Holmes's notes, has turned as cranky as he is. I think that is what I was kind of trying to go for, but it was kind of funny to see it on a 20-something, because she's in her late 20s. And so to also have a little bit of it's that It's like you've 20s, never met me. Oh, you know, some days I try to forget, but you've had that coming this whole episode. So there. Yes. Yes, I have. But, no, yeah. It's fun developing this character, and it was kind of fun seeing Adelaide and Rosella mesh, because they disagree on Holmes. And the thing is, Adelaide's frustrated because she has the proof, but she doesn't, no one knows she has this book. Um, not even Nessie, her business partner, knows this book is sitting in a safe in her office. And so to sit there and be like, I know Holmes was real because I have his book sitting right five feet from you. She's not going to say that. So it's kind of funny to see it more from her point of view than from Rizal's. That was also what was tricky was, you know, and I occasionally had James yell at me because I would kind of slip into Rizal's head and like, no, this is Adelaide's story. It's actually with Adelaide. And then, you know, Rizal is going to have more than her fair share in her own series. Yes. Plus, you don't really need more with how brutal Rosella is over Adelaide believing in Holmes. Uh, yeah, Shh, they do go around over that. And it was something that actually got added to the story later on, because originally I wasn't going to have that whole bit. And then we I added it um, more kind of tightening Rosella's role in the story. And it was something fun they could fight over was Holmes, because because um, this whole thing they meet starting because they're both talking at two different conferences in, in London at the same time. And so it's kind of that, oh, you were there for that Holmes conference, and she knows where Adelaide stands, and Adelaide knows where she stands, and they're just going to fight over it anyways, even though they disagree, because they can, because they're both two great detectives in this day and age. and But they disagree over Sherlock Holmes. Yes. Now that we're starting to draw to a close, is there anything you want to talk about that we haven't touched on yet? Um, let's. See. We've mentioned quite a bit here in this hour, and I'm sure stuff will get mentioned in part two. We know it's Nikki's episode because we've brought Nikki in a couple times. <laughs> yes. yes, your turn is coming, dear. Oh dear. Uh, oh yes. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Um, 
Well, we mentioned the time, time Travel Nexus, mentioned Garage City even got a plug. I even plugged Lemon Harbors, which I found to be a lot of fun. And it was great working with Jim, who was on the show, I want to say a month ago, maybe a little Yeah, about there. that. Month, month about a month half. ago. It's And it's been fun. We also worked on Saucy Robot together. And it's fun working with Jim. Um, he's got, you know, more experience in writing. So it's fun to get to, you know, chat with him. And I'm also going to plug for Jim. He's actually got a Spider-Man novel coming out next month that I'm excited for him that he got that opportunity and so it's been fun it's fun working um actually gonna work a bit with nikki because she's a series editor and i have a series with 18th wall coming so it's gonna be fun collaborating with her it's not get to hear her say no so often i will just gonna say i get to say no but I'm very excited to collaborate with her on Rosella's Tales. Um, and, of course, I'm always collaborating with James. Uh, I will say it again. James saved Badge City. It would not have been the book it was if James hadn't come in and helped me save it. So, once again, thank you for that, James. You're welcome, even though there's still no period on that first sentence. That will forever haunt me. It's almost worse <laughs> than Doc Claus. That the award-winning book doesn't have a period on the end of its first sentence. Uh. <laughs> And where can our listeners find you on social media? You can find me all over, actually. I'm on my own page, mhnorse, facebook.com backslash mhnorse. I'm on Twitter at mhnorse4. You also can find me on 18th Wall once a week for my If Walls Could Talk column. Um, usually on Wednesdays, occasionally it comes on Thursdays. Whoops. Uh, but th- I actually, that's that's a fun thing to write at times, I'm like, why do I do this every week? But I do enjoy kind of putting my thoughts out. And I realize that I now need to come up with a topic for next week's. But I'll worry about that after next episode. Um, you also can find me always on Time Travel Nexus's Facebook page, facebook.com backslash Time Travel Nexus, or on their Twitter, because my articles will go out there. Um, I'm actually in the middle of doing a once-a-month for 12-month series on Doctor Who on each Doctor. So here in September, we're going to do the ninth Doctor which I think is going to be fun because he was my first doctor. And so I get really? to talk a little bit about fun. that. Of all the F words you can pick when you're talking about the ninth doctor, you go with fun. It's going to be fantastic, James. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, that's you can find me around 18th wall on my own page or over at the time travel nexus. Um, you look one of those three places. I'll be around. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you guys. We'll be right back after these breaks. all there is there isn't any more join us next week when nicole and mh swap places nicole Petit will be our interview guest while mh will take on her co-hosting duties like an old coat she forgot to wash the 18th wall power hour will come to its riveting conclusion before we end i want to thank our sponsor all the petty miss investigative agency a special thanks to robert eronsky jr for starting us on this journey as well as tiny white and the deadites for our show's theme leaf on a stream thanks to all listened you make this possible remember to subscribe and rate our show on itunes it makes all the difference and as always everything happens somewhere good night